Hello, everyone. I wish to welcome you to the First Baptist Church sermon on Easter. Um, I hope that everyone is remaining safe and healthy, and I pray that God would continue to bless you and that he would keep you during this time. Um, with that, I do ask that you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read over um, something written by Paul. We're going to start with verse 12 and go through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Easter Sunday is one of the most important holidays within the Christian religion. It is the day when we take time to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is on this day that we recognize the very real truth which concerns Christ, and that is that there is no middle ground with him. For no matter if one is a believer or an unbeliever, none can say that anything concerning Christ is of minor importance. Either Christ lived, died, and rose again, or he did not. If he did, then the world is changed. If not, then the purpose why Christians meet every Sunday, or the grand history of the church, or even the blood of the martyrs, they're all made void, worthless. And we who believe are most to be pitied, just like Paul says. So this leads to the question, is what was taught and written about Jesus true? Is the Bible historically reliable? How can we know whether it is true or not? These questions are important, for if we can answer them, then we will be able to silence doubt within ourselves, as well as silence some of the doubt others have about Jesus. Thus, we're going to look at a few of these things and consider what the evidence says. We're going to look at the historical reliability of the Bible. We're going to look at some skeptics, and then we're going to also look at personal experience to help explain all that this is about the resurrection. So, to begin, when it comes to the life and death of Christ, there is really no debate. Scholars, whether Christians or not, recognize Jesus Christ was a Jew who lived in the first century in Israel. Few doubt the claim that he actually existed, that he was a teacher, and that he had disciples. Likewise, few doubt that he was even nailed to a cross, or was even considered a martyr. As such, when we consider the gospel narratives, the books of the Bible which deal with the life of Jesus, we find the majority of scholars actually agree with Christians in understanding that they are historically reliable. That is, when we look at the gospels, we can see signs that the authors were not writing a great distance in time or space after the events took place, but were themselves eyewitnesses to the events, or they talked to people who were eyewitnesses. 
If this is true, then the historical evidence found in the Gospels which detail the life of Jesus, well, they're very important. But what evidence do we have specifically to help us understand this reliability? Well, we have telltale signs of their reliability. Consider the names in the Gospels. If let's say the Gospels were written elsewhere, let's say in Egypt, for example, then that would mean that we would expect to find Jewish-Egyptian names. Indeed, the common names for Egyptian Jews were actually quite different than those in Judah and Galilee during the time of Jesus. But what do we find in the Gospels? Well, we find the common names of people match what we find in Judea at the time. The text even gives us information on which names were more common than others. Consider the twelve disciples as described in Matthew. We read, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now what do we notice about some of those names? Well, we notice that there are multiples, right? Simon Peter and Simon the zealot. But we also know another one. For example, James the son of Alphaeus, but there's also James the son of Zebedee. You notice how they add the son of for those particular names that are more well known. And we see that throughout the Gospels. For example, Simon the Cyrene and Simon the leper. It's because Simon was a really well-known name and that was a way to distinguish people from who they were. We find historically that these names were still more popular during that time in that area. So it's not surprising that the Bible shows us that this is the case. But it isn't only with the names of the people. Consider the places mentioned. Uh, We notice there are a number of these small towns mentioned specifically in the Gospels. Bethpage, Bethsaida, uh, Bethany, Capernaum. Not only these small town names, but we also get an interesting little details on their locations or how far they were from other places. Thus, the question is, how would the writers know about these small towns? How did they get them right? Well, they would need to know where the towns were in order to accurately give truthful information. And that's what we find that they do. They gave us truthful information. We can still see this today. So the names are what we'd expect, as are the places. Now, a third point is the flora. Now, you might be thinking, the flora. And I say, yes, the flora. For example, we all know about Zacchaeus, right? And you're thinking, even right now in your head, what do we know about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and all these other things. But we also know he climbed up a tree. What kind of a tree did he climb up? A sycamore tree. That's right. Now, what else do we know? We know that his story happened in Jericho. Now the question is, are there sycamore trees in Jericho? Is that a native tree to that area? The answer is yes. Now throughout the Gospels, we also find out about fig trees and olives and all these other things. Are they prominent in Judea at the time? The answer is yes. And where Jesus fed the 5,000, the location is given. And it tells us that they didn't just sit on the grass when Jesus told them to sit. Um, 
Actually, we find that they did. They sat on the grass. They didn't just uh, sit on the ground. It's very specific in its flora. The Gospels, they get that stuff right. Now, the fourth point is something which is relatively new to us. And that has to do with the crucifixion. Now, do you all remember that how around the time when Jesus died, something occurred in the sky? Do you know what happened? Well, some of you are saying, yeah, the sky got dark. There was a solar eclipse. Now, do you know something interesting that we found? Well, we can look back and see when Friday was the beginning of Passover during that time period. And what we've come to find is that there are two years when that happened, 30 AD and 33 AD. And wouldn't you know it, in 33 AD, we found that there was a solar eclipse that happened right in the time frame. As in, it was within the right hour and that it would be seen at that location in Judea at the time. So I've given you this information for one purpose. The Gospels are often said uh, by those who are not scholars that they're biased or unreliable. The truth is we find them to be very historically reliable as we see these little bits of information added that would normally not be seen if they were not reliable. How can we be sure of this? Well, let's consider some that are not historically reliable. How many of you have ever heard of the apocryphal Gospels? The Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of James. Do you know what's very interesting about these texts? They lack any of the information we would expect from eyewitness sources. Indeed, when it comes to, let's say, place names, do you know what we find? There's usually just one main place name, and that is Jerusalem. Now, one of them does say Nazareth, but what's interesting about that is that that is given as Jesus' middle name, but that's not Jesus' middle name. That is where he was from, Nazareth. Now, we would expect this of people who write about things that they don't actually know about. For example, if I were to have you write a book on France... What is the likeliest city you would write about? Paris. Why? Because everyone knows that Paris is the capital of France. It's its most well-known city. But it's not only locations that these apocryphal books lack. But consider some of the things they say about Jesus. They rarely use the name Jesus. Instead, it will be Savior or Christ. That's important because it implies a further written date than those of what we find in the Gospels. Because the farther you get from something, the more likely you are to forget names or not worry about those little inconsistencies. Likewise, such later written materials would be satisfied with this because everyone knows who Christ is or Savior is. You wouldn't need to say Jesus Christ when everyone would know who you're talking about. So when we consider all of these things, and there is far more we haven't even gotten into, we find the Gospels to be very historically reliable. Scholars, whether believers or not, all recognize this to be the case. That leads to the next question. If scholars across the board agree with the historical reliability of the Gospels, then why aren't they all believers? Well, the answer lies in the crucifixion and the resurrection. For the unbeliever, the crucifixion is the end of the story. 
Instead of there being anything more, Christ simply died. What then of the resurrection, you ask? Well, they will say some interesting things. Some will say the disciples, let's say, made up the whole resurrection story. But let's consider that. For those who believe that the disciples made up the story, it makes little sense. First, consider what we find in the scriptures concerning the resurrection account. Who was it that was first to the empty tomb? Was it any of the 12 male disciples mentioned above? No, it was women. Why weren't the disciples there? Because they were not expecting Christ to rise from the dead. They thought it was over. They all fled as soon as Christ was arrested. And Peter, one of the few who didn't, even betrayed Christ at the time, denying him three times. If the disciples made up the story of the resurrection, then why do it in this way? Why not make themselves look better instead of looking completely lost and ignorant? Further, why add to the story that women were the first to encounter the empty tomb? Few seem to realize that during the first century, women were rarely allowed to even give testimony when it came to court. Thus, the testimony of the women, the fact that they were the first to encounter the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus, is significant for the time. This leads to the second important point which is that no first century Jew had even considered the resurrection of a single person before. Instead, the resurrection was understood to be an eschatological, an end times event that would be for everyone. Within Jewish literature, there is no event which occurs like the rising of Christ from the dead. Some will say, well, what about Enoch or Elijah? The problem with these two is that they were not resurrections. They were what we call translations, where one went to heaven without dying. Likewise, one would ask about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, for example. Yet this is not a resurrection either. Lazarus was what they called a resuscitation back then. That is, where one was brought back to life, but he would die again. The resurrection during the time of Christ meant one thing. It's that, that he would die, and then he would be raised into immortality, never to die again, because that is the definition of the term resurrection for them. This is the language used by the New Testament writers themselves. They did not see this as a translation. They did not see him as a resuscitation, but as the resurrection. Christ to rise from the dead into immortality would go against everything the disciples had understood then. Does this make sense with what we read in the text? One would say it does, especially since, again, the disciples are not seen to even comprehend the resurrection of Jesus. They were not expecting it. They were just as surprised and shocked as anyone else. While it is easy for us to use the term 2,000 years after the fact, for the Jew in the first century would have been a completely new and foreign concept of resurrection. Yet here they are understanding it in this way. So the women and this term resurrection used to describe Christ are two significant points which go against why it's unlikely the disciples would have or could have even made up the whole story. Still, some will say that this assumes Jesus did rise from the dead. So, 
let's assume Jesus was not raised from the dead. What is the major problem with this? Well, the problem is that the tomb was empty. Even if the disciples were to make up the story that Jesus rose from the dead, their skeptics could go to the burial place, see the body, and then discredit them. As it is, they can't do this because there was no body in the tomb. Some will point to Matthew 28, 11-15 as an argument against the empty tomb. Consider what the text actually says. It's very interesting. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Aha! Gotcha, the skeptic will say. Clearly, the body was stolen by the disciples in the night. But here's something to consider about this. First, again, the disciples would never have thought about this kind of understanding of the resurrection on their own. Second, why, why would Christians include this information in their own history? It seems self-defeating if it were true. This then leads to the third point, which is that the argument by the Sanhedrin is one which you would expect from those who are, in fact, skeptical themselves. And now the final point is this. The tomb was empty. No skeptical Jewish leader could go to the tomb and say the disciples are liars about Christ rising because the body was still there. Their own argument verifies that the body was gone and the tomb was empty. Also, consider those who had seen Jesus after the resurrection took place. Some some skeptics will say, ah, but it was mass hysteria. The problem is, again, none of those Jewish believers would have had mass hysteria because they would never have even thought of a resurrected Savior. For them, the Christ was to be the warrior king who defeated all their enemies. Christ dying on the cross was nothing they were expecting. Likewise, there's never been an instance when everyone experienced the same thing in mass hysteria. The same exact words, the same exact experience. In cases of mass hysteria, one would say, well, I saw him wearing white and he said one plus two equals three. Meanwhile, the person next to them would say, well, I saw him wearing red and he was saying ABCD. Yet in the Gospels, all the disciples experience the exact same thing. And they hear the exact same words. Another point is this. Consider the way Jesus is presented after the resurrection. Think about it. If one wanted to make up a story about Jesus, you would make him a grand example. He would be taller than the tomb, shining, dazzling brilliance. Yet he isn't like that at all. He is even mistaken as the gardener. Indeed, the angels appear more dazzling than the risen Lord. If they were making it up, why write about his appearance in such a mundane, everyday, normal kind of way? Further, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There is a lot of information from this passage. First, this is not originally written by Paul. The language is different than the rest of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it flows well with Aramaic, which implies it was first in Aramaic and then translated into Greek, which is the language the letter is actually written in. This is especially clear since we notice Peter, he's called Cephas. All scholars, whether believers or unbelievers, recognize that these few verses are very important for the church historically because it shows that these words are some of the oldest in church history. This makes even more sense that it was not originally Paul's when he says, I delivered to you what I also received. The language describes teaching and learning. He was taught this and then proclaimed the same gospel to others. Paul had been converted one to three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. As such, it implies that this is a very, very old teaching from the beginning of the conception of the church. But what was he given? The gospel itself, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and raised on the third day. The fact that he died, was truly dead, and was buried implies that he was in fact in the tomb. But that ultimately he had been resurrected from death. And because of that, the tomb was empty. Next, consider what the text says about who Jesus appeared to. First to Peter. Then to the twelve, then five hundred brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then to James, then all the apostles, then last of all to Paul. Consider all of that information for a second. Jesus, he appears to a great number of his followers. And Paul is reminding them, if you doubt this, go ask them. Some are still alive. Go and ask if they truly experienced a physical Jesus or some ghost. And they will tell you the same. That they experienced a physical Christ raised from the dead. Likewise, the three named individuals are important. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was the first head of the church after Pentecost, which we see in Acts. The second one named is James. He was the half-brother of Jesus. What do we know about James? Well, we learn in Mark 3 that he thought Jesus was insane. Yet after Peter, it is James who becomes the most important leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we find that information more in Acts. After that, it is Paul, who prior to his conversion was known as the great persecutor of the church. What would cause Peter... James, and Paul to change their minds over what had occurred. We can't chalk it up to a delusion or what they expected. The truth is, Peter, under normal circumstances, would have found a different Messiah or teacher as most did during that time. 
For James, there's no reason for him to experience Jesus at all. He wasn't even a disciple. Paul, meanwhile, was a very devout Jew who thought he was doing God's will by persecuting the early Christians. Only something of significant consequence would allow these doubting and even hostile men to change their opinions. And that experience was a truly resurrected Jesus. Finally, consider how much of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. When we consider how Christ is described as the Lamb of God, it reminds us everything prior to Christ was foreshadowing his coming. The Passover lamb was the prelude to Christ. His blood cleanses um, us and it causes death to pass over us. Indeed, this is just one example of so many more in which the scriptures themselves foretold the coming of Christ and what his life, death, and resurrection would mean for the world. Thus, we have good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And now we should have a good understanding of how those who are looking at the resurrection in the early church perceived it. And how they were writing about what happened with this person, Jesus, who they experienced. They experienced both the physical death of Jesus, but they also experienced the resurrection of Jesus. Yet this causes us to reflect on one final bit of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And that is with his presence. Even though we may not see him or hear him, his presence is surely with us. And we know it through our experiences. In this way, we, 2,000 years later, know Christ is truly risen for we experience him here and now in our lives. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then we would have no experience of Christ. But as it is, we do, and thus Christ must be raised. Indeed, this is the second point for the evidence of the resurrection. If the first point dealt with all the historical, which we've gone over, the second deals with the personal experience we have. For those who believe in Christ have had an experience with Christ. He lives in our hearts. He leads each of us by our hand and loves each of us. He has promised to be with us and each of us who belongs to him knows him personally as they do their own family. We know Jesus is risen because he is with us. This reminds me of a story about Charles Templeton, a contemporary and friend of Billy Graham, who ended up leaving the faith. But when he had an interview with Lee Strobel, he said something very interesting. Consider the exchange that he had with Lee. And how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. 
He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of, to the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really cared about him, I said. Well, yes. He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes. Yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't look of, think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is, is Jesus. And a, but, but no, he said slowly, he's the most. He stopped, then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising up his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Presence. The presence of Christ is a true and real experience. So what of this resurrection? We have justification. And when we consider the vast evidence, we certainly have warrant for believing this historical event took place. However, what does it mean? Well, it would mean that God exists. For nothing like this event could ever occur within the natural order. For no one could be raised from death into immortality apart from a supernatural act of God. If God exists, then it means he has done something in history. But for what purpose? Consider what Jesus says in John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This occurs now with Mary Magdalene right after the resurrection. We notice Jesus calls them his brothers and calls his father their father, his God, their God. In this verse alone, we recognize the resurrection has consequences for those who know Christ and who are known by Christ. Those who are brothers of Christ are children of the Father. It is only after the resurrection that this is possible. And consider what Paul says in Romans 4, 22-25. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. The death of Jesus deals with our sins. We are in need of our sins being erased. They are erased by the power of the blood of Christ on the cross. However, it does not end there. With the resurrection, we see that even death has been conquered. Thus, our justification is not in part, but complete. Through the resurrection, because Christ has overcome the grave, we will as well. Death will not be able to keep us, not because of our own power, but because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As Paul says in Romans 6, 9 through 11, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But for the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And further in 1 Corinthians 15, 48 through 49, he says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. My dear friends, there is a great amount of evidence here. But evidence is not enough, for it still requires faith to believe, even if the evidence is so great. All the evidence does is help us with our doubts, and it silences the skeptics, and it gives strength to our faith in Christ. So, today we recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those who have faith in Christ, in his life, his death, and his resurrection... And those who have the faith, fruit of faith through repentance from sin, they will not feel the bite of sin and death, but instead will inherit eternal life through the Son of God. For just as he went into death, he was raised. And though we go into death, we too will be raised if we are in Christ Jesus. On this holy day, Know the blessings which come from the resurrection of Christ. Know that through him we too will have a resurrection from a mortal body into an immortal body. We who die in Christ merely fall asleep for a time, but will awake into a new life. It is all because of Christ. It is all because of what he has done. If we are bound to Christ, then we too will experience the wonder of his resurrection. From Friday through Sunday morning, the disciples had lost hope. They had doubt and darkness deep because they believed it was the end. The darkness, however, passed at the coming radiant light of Christ Jesus. So we too feel this darkness and experience the pangs of sin. Yet those who are in Christ have received the same radiant light. And in time, that radiant light will lead them to eternal life through Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes his grand case for the resurrection. He ends with these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Continue then to be steadfast in the faith. Be immovable and continue in faithfulness to our Lord. So, are we to be most pitied? I would say, no, not at all. Instead of pity, we can experience the exact opposite. We can celebrate. We can rejoice, for we know Jesus Christ has been resurrected. We can rejoice because we know he has defeated death. And we can rejoice because we know that his heart beats. At this time, I'd like to give a benediction. And I'm going to close with um, a sermon written by John Chrysostom back around 400 AD. And John, he was considered to be one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. Um, so a long time ago, he, he, he wrote this. And I'm going to share it with you and then we can conclude. If any man be devout and love God, let him enjoy this fair and radiant triumphal feast. If any man be a wise servant, let him rejoicing enter into the joy of his Lord. If any have labored long and fasting, let him now receive his recompense. If any have wrought from the first hour, let him today receive his just reward. If any have come at the third hour, let him with thankfulness keep the feast. If any have arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, because he shall in no wise be deprived thereof. If any have delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near, fearing nothing. If any have tarried even until the eleventh hour, let him also be not alarmed at his tardiness. For the Lord, who is jealous of his honor, will accept the last even as the first. He gives rest unto him who comes at the eleventh hour, even as unto him who has wrought from the first hour. And he shows mercy upon the last and cares for the first. And to the one he gives and upon the other he bestows gifts. And he both accepts the deeds and welcomes the intention and honors the acts and praises the offering. Wherefore, enter you all into the joy of your Lord and receive your reward, both the first and likewise the second. You rich and poor together, hold high festival. You sober and you heedless, honor the day. Rejoice today, both you who have fasted and you who have disregarded the fast. The table is full laden. Feast ye all sumptuously. The calf is fattened. Let no one go hungry away. Enjoy ye all the feast of faith. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell, said he, was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. 
It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. God bless everyone. I hope you all have a happy Resurrection Sunday. God bless.